I strongly believe in the power of writing because when I'm gone, my books will document this bitch was right, you know? <laughs> my books will document this bitch in 2020 already said it. From The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD, this is LGBTQ and A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I firmly believe that Alok Vaidmanan is one of the great minds and thinkers in our community. You know, one of the most important aspects of their work, I believe, is the continual reminder that gender non-conforming people have always existed. And not only that, but gender, both our idea and definitions of gender, they're fluid. And depending on where you are in the world, you might have a very different experience of gender. There are places outside of the U.S. and even in the U.S. where gender non-conforming people are formally recognized parts of society. I say that because the future that Alok is working for, for all of us, it's in our grasp. It's not as far away or alien as people think. Now, a few weeks ago, Alok and I recorded this conversation to celebrate the release of their new book, Beyond the Gender Binary. If you enjoy it, please make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you're listening right now. And then without further ado, here's Alok. You know, reading your book, Beyond the Gender Binary, as well as your poetry book, Femme in Public, it brought up a lot of stuff for me. And I think it all goes back to that big question that you write. What feminine part of yourself did you have to kill in order to survive in the world? Mm -hmm. And I want to start by turning that question on you. Was there one big moment when you decided that you would no longer kill, to use your words, the feminine part of yourself? Actually, yeah. You know, most times when people ask me questions like that, I'm like, it's nuanced, it's complicated, there were multiple moments, but this question is one of the few in the world where there was like a defining moment. I believe it was in 2014, and I hooked up with an ex-partner, which is always a bad idea. <laughs> and at, on the other side, he was like, you're just using they, them pronouns to be political, but you're not actually trans, right? And I just remember feeling so deeply violated because what occurred to me is that the only ways that I had been loved required my disappearance and misrecognition. And so I began to question if I was ever loved for me or for my ability to fit into other people's fantasy of what I should be. And then that night, I was hanging out with some friends and I sat them down and I said, I can't do this anymore. Like I need to present more feminine and I'm very afraid of what that's going to mean for me. And I'm very afraid of like my safety and my security, but I've come to a point now where I can't, I can't sustain the psychological toll of this. And then after that, I just went running and I like, I, it was, it was kind of like a second becoming, I just like bought a lot of dresses and lipsticks and, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I was kind of experimenting, but it felt so good. And it felt like coming home. Wow. You know, so much of the focus, especially early on was like about your femininity. I think that it would be easy to assume because like back then there was like so much less visibility for non-binary people that like, oh, I'm just a trans woman. Right. Are you able to describe like what you were experiencing and feeling that you told that told you it was something else? I think for me, 
for a long time, I began to question, and I've never really spoken about this, so I'm glad that we're having it now. I began to question, is my femininity something that is organic or is it something that was imposed? Because when I was young, my father left for a job elsewhere. So I was mostly raised by my mom and my older sister. And so traditionally male stereotypical roles were something I never really imbibed, like learning how to pee while standing up or like just like sports, you know, these things like I, I never really had that kind of socialization or indoctrination. And in many ways, I was just treated as like a woman. And my family was very amazing and is very amazing. So that when I was a little kid, I was wearing girls clothes only exclusively. And it was never actually about gender. It was just about that's what Alok wants to wear. And so I think I began to feel like who what is organic? Like, what is my desire versus like, what has been? And then I started to realize that that's a false binary and a really misleading framework, because I don't think it's, I don't think it's possible to separate the me from the us. And I think that that's both tragic and incredibly beautiful, that we are like deeply enmeshed in culture and in everything around us and that surrounds us. And so when I started to experiment with my femininity, I'm removed any idea of purity, I removed any idea of like authenticity, and I instead subscribed to joy, meaning, does this give me joy? Does this not give me joy? And I thought about medical transition. And then I was like, actually, that wouldn't make me feel joyous. I feel most joyous with like a beard, a full face of makeup, lipstick, and like a mini skirt. <laughs> and that's just where I feel the most me. And I think that feelings for me as an artist are so much more poignant than words. And so it's less about like, I'm trans or I'm a woman. And it's more about, I feel good. And back then when you were figuring out that like this brought you joy, this didn't bring you joy. I had mentioned that like visibility was so less for anybody gender nonconforming. Did it feel like you were going about it alone? Yes, absolutely. And I think what was even more complicated is I was one of the few visible kind of gender non-conforming people in the media at the time. And so I really had no precedent. And then instantaneously, my coming into myself was also a public coming into itself. And that is something that I'm only now on the other side, like six years later, really starting to process how painful that was. Because it was like, am I ready to be taking the steps I'm taking? Or am I taking them because politically that's what the world needs? And so I found myself in incredibly dangerous situations because I would say things like, okay, I'm in New York City. I'm going to wear dresses every single day to say, fuck you. But then I was literally getting attacked and I wasn't ready for that. Like I, no one prepared me for you feel joy and then you experience persecution. And, but then I felt like I had to do that because there was no other visibility of someone like me. So I felt like, okay, I, I mean, in that era of my life, I was taking so many outdoor street portraits because I just wanted to show people that like someone like me could be in public and everyone would be like, wow, this is so amazing. Like we never see that. But the kind of hidden narrative is like, I'm fucking terrified. <laughs> and like, I don't have any support. I think the reason I was able to do it, though, is at the time I was working at a community organization called the Audre Lorde Project in New York. And I was so lucky to be part of a group called Trans Justice, which is a political organizing group for trans and gender nonconforming people of color. 
And what made trans justice unique at that time was it was profoundly intergenerational. So there were trans women who were actually at Stonewall who were part of our group and a lot of trans women in their 40s and 50s. And so those conversations, they would look at me and say, I know what you're doing. And I'd be like, what do you mean? And they'd be like, back in my day, we would call people like you going out in drags. And drags was actually not just about a performance, it was a political challenge to heterosexual respectability. And that drag queens would be committed to glamour amidst all of the oppression we were experiencing. And I see you fucking with gender and playing with gender. And it makes me jealous because I wish that we could have done what you're doing right now. And we would have these beautiful conversations where they would say, our visibility and our work has allowed younger people like you to do this. And so that allowed me to at least feel like I was part of a legacy, even though I felt alone in this other sense. That is so interesting because I hear a lot of people describing you as an activist. I hear you very rarely taking on that label. But at the same time, I wonder if describing what you did about like being publicly living outside the gender binary in public, can you describe that in any way except for activism? Mm. Like in 2020? You know, I think, like I was saying about words, categories, I'm deeply ambivalent about them because it feels wrong to make existence synonymous with activism. And I, I, I really believe activism should actually be about advocating on behalf of other people, not just self-assertion. And I think especially when it comes to the queer community, I think it's very dangerous how you standardize like coming out as an act of activism. I'm like, okay, cool, like you came out, but like now are you gonna educate yourself about the history of our community? the internal dynamics of our community? Are you going to leverage whatever kind of access you have on behalf of other members? Or, you know, like that often gets lost because we, we accept this kind of simplistic narrative of authenticity as activism. And it's like not to diminish, I think coming out is really difficult for a lot of people. And, and I don't want to diminish that. But I also want to say that I believe and the power of queer community, meaning we have to actually think about other people in our circumstances and think about gay and trans and bi and lesbian as plural identities, not just individual ones. Um, I think that the, I, if I had to use a category to describe myself, it would be artist. And the reason I say artist is because I think that we're in a political moment where activism has become synonymous with critique and I'm so much more interested in creation and I think that actually creation is the ultimate expression of critique, because if we create an alternative that is so irresistible, there's no going back. And so, so much of what I've tried to do in my life is to manifest ideas, images, words, aesthetics, concepts that actually completely challenge a paradigm. And I'm trying to, I think, fight for paradigmatic shift. And in the book, what I was really trying to get at is I feel like this gender conversation has become gatekept and sidelined as a minority issue, but I actually believe that every single person, regardless of their gender identity, has suffered because of the gender binary. Right. And I think that we as a society, we've trained and we have a lot of public examples about talking about sexuality, but we just begin to have that conversation about gender and how it impacts everything we do. And I think that we are like so much, we've just less experience and are less comfortable talking about gender, be it for cis or trans people or for anybody. Yeah. And, and I think that there's a historical reason for that. I mean, I keep on returning to history because I think as queer people, one of the ways that we're oppressed is we're denied our history and formal education. 
And so it makes us feel like we're impossible and like we're unprecedented. And that's just not true because we've actually been here for thousands of years and we've actually created incredible networks of resistance. And one of the things that most people don't know is the history of the term gay, right? So gay was originally a political identity that was associated with the gay liberation front. When you read the gay liberation front and their manifestos, the way that they conceived of gay was a challenge to the heterosexual system in society. And they would say the heterosexual gender binary. So gay was actually a political challenge to gender norms because what initial gay activists understood is that the reason that gay men and lesbians, it wasn't really bi and trans inclusive at the time, were experiencing oppression was because of sexism and misogyny. And they understood that the natural coalition of a gay liberation movement was the women's movement. But then what happened is that a sort of cohort of white masculine middle-class gay men came in and shifted the agenda away from gender justice towards sexuality. And that betrayal for me is deeply upsetting because you see the ramifications of that today with rolling back on abortion rights as gay marriage continues to win victories with the rampant crisis of gender-based violence and sexual violence as people become more LGBT inclusive. It's like, for me, the coreness of being queer is feminism because it's about recognizing that the root of all of this is a hatred of womanhood and femininity. And for you earlier in the interview, you said that you were growing up and wearing dresses and it was not about gender. It was just a loke and who a loke was. When did you make that connection and assign all of that to gender? It wasn't me making that connection, it was other people making that connection. So the kind of paradox of trans feminine life is that when we're young, people call us sissies and girls and faggots and he she's and trannies and pussies. And then when we actually come into ourselves and say, I am trans, then they're like, you're a man. <laughs> and it's just like, uh, this is kind of perverse. And so I never understood what I was doing as gender or femininity. I just understood it as like joy and creativity and expression. And then people started to call me all these names. And people started to say that because I was so feminine, that meant I was gay. And if I was gay, that meant I should die. And so I began to police my voice, my gestures, how I walked, who I spoke to, my internal monologue. And that, that kind of sense of a body becoming a closet is the sort of psychological trauma of so many queer men that I know. But the difference, I think, between a lot of trans feminine people and masculine cis gay men is that so many of us actually took the time to sit and, and be like, am I only trying to do this masculine facade because of my fear of like abandonment, my fear of violence, and how much of me is mediated by fear? And I think that what I think is so beautiful about transition is so many of us know that we're going to experience more violence, that the obnoxious narrative in the media now that we're opportunistic and we're transitioning to um, be snowflakes or because we think that we're special or because we want nice recognition is so wrong because a lot of us transition knowing that we're going to be exposed to even more harm and vulnerability. But the reason that we do it is because we want to fashion a self that is not mediated by other people's fears or projections. And in that way, I think it's one of the most joyous things I've done in my life, even though it's created so much precarity, is because I fundamentally am living my life as a materialization of me my own meaning and not other people's. 
And I think that making that choice, knowing it would affect your personal safety, that's not something that I assume is taken lightly. Yeah, it's not. So as visibility and awareness of trans people has increased in the last two to three years, have you experienced a change in your own personal safety? You know, I think it's I think it's a really complicated conversation because multiple things are happening. On the one hand, yes, that we can't underestimate the impact that visibility of trans and non-binary people in the media has had because it's given permission and community for so many of us who felt like we were impossible. And that is a huge concern around suicide and mental health in our communities, right? Because trans Asian Americans like me have some of the highest suicide attempt rates in the world. I think the last reported statistic is 63% of us have attempted suicide. And to be able to see that other people exist, I think gives permission on a daily level to materialize yourself. But that being said, I think what's happened in the past few years is that the public consciousness of transness has actually relied on the gender binary. So the conception is I'm okay with you being trans because you are demonstrating that you are on the complete opposite spectrum and that this is your medical condition and you're actually just a normal person who is just moving to the absolute opposite category. And so now what's happened is that we are failing not only to be cis, but we're failing to be trans. So it actually creates a whole new frontier of oppression because now you can have binary, largely white trans people say, ugh, they're transgenders, they're not real, they're making it up, they're the reason that we're experiencing violence and discrimination. And it's the same thing that happened in the gay liberation movement where masculine gay men would point to drag queens and femme people and say, the reason that we're experiencing homophobia is because you won't change how you dress. And the narrative is never the reason we're experiencing violence is because of homophobia and transphobia. Like the onus always becomes on us to modify our appearance versus the people who are attacking us. So I actually think that we're in this really dangerous moment right now where visibly gender nonconforming people who have and continue to experience the brunt of public violence and harassment are completely neglected, even within the imagination of the trans community. Like, for example, if we think about bathroom legislation, what people are trying to say is you should be able to use a bathroom that is consistent with your gender. But what if my gender is not man or woman? What if my gender looks different on every single day? There's no legal conception on how to advocate for people who are fluid like me. On a given day, I could look so different than I looked the day before. The, the, the emphasis is still on me, me changing my identity documents, me changing where I move and how I dress, not systems having to accommodate for gender fluidity. And like thinking of binary gender, like women have always ha been allowed more leeway in their like gender expression compared to men. Do you see a difference in like how like your gender is treated by like different binary genders? Mm -hmm. I think that for me, it's actually more mediated by race than by gender. I experienced the most transphobic policing from white people. And I think that that is really important to say because another mythology that is perpetuated by the media is that immigrants and brown and black folks are somehow more homophobic and more transphobic and that the U.S. is somehow a more accepting place. And as an Indian person, that just always strikes me as obnoxious 
because in my country of origin, actually trans people are given reservations by the government for accommodation and for employment that actually in crisis response in Kerala right now, where my family is from, the government is actually giving free food to trans communities that actually it's possible to mark yourself as a third gender on all your identity documents and that there's a, a historic thousand year recognition of people beyond the binary. Whereas in the West, they still have the audacity to say that we are new and that we're inventing our genders. And so I think what happens here is that people just have no frame of reference for gender nonconforming people. And that has to do with settler colonialism, that often the first indigenous people who were murdered in the U.S. were visibly gender nonconforming people. And that's why I think the visibility of two-spirit people in the United States is really important because two-spirit people are actually showing that indigenous cultures across the world, but especially in Turtle Island, had a long history of acceptance of queer and trans people. I mean, I think that some of the most important aspects of your work is reminding people of those two things. One, that gender nonconformity has existed forever. It's not new. And two, that when we talk about gender, we're talking about a Western view of gender totally. and that not every civilization or people think like that. You mentioned India, where your parents were from. Mm -hmm. I know like Hydra loosely translates to trans, right? Hydra actually is like a cultural term that's specific and calling it trans is like an easy approximation, but there are also people in India who identify as trans women and not Hydra. There are people who identify as Hydra, but not trans women. But I think that the reason that Hydra comes up in these conversations is that Hydra people continue to be evidence of the fact that there have long been people who have congregated outside of a Western gender binary. So because your family comes from a culture that has an understanding of of non-binary gender, how did that affect their experience of your gender? From a young age, I had a family that not only affirmed me for my gender, but also affirmed me for my intellect and my ideas. So I grew up in a, in a kind of family where it's like, what is your opinion on this? And um, if I wanted to say something, I just had to research it and make an argument. And then my family took it seriously. So it'd be like, <laughs> I want to go to the mall. And they'd be like, well, why? And if I was able to argue why going to the mall was important for me and my development and like my life, then I could go to the damn mall, you know? My family comes from a tradition of South Asian intellectuals. And, and still to this day, knowledge is a tool of power. From a young age, I was encouraged to read and to figure out what was going on. And so I had the luxury that a lot of people don't have to have a family that gave me books. And like, I think that that for me has always influenced my art practice, my political work is actually trying to say, it's really troublesome that history and theory has been gatekept by the academy because these ideas can actually change the world. Like when I tell people, did you know that when U.S. colonists first came to the U.S. in their diaries, they would write, why are these bare chested women without wearing a shirt? Did you know that the term missionary sex actually was pioneered by Spanish conquistadors who would force indigenous people into Catholic missionaries and teach them how to have sex as a way to maximize procreation? Like facts like that demystify so much and make so much possibility. And I think that's why I'm always trying to use my platform to teach people. I've started to do book reviews like every week. I've started to do lectures on my Instagram live because it's striking me now more than ever how knowledge can actually be one of the biggest vehicles to resist. 
And so this valuing of history and just like knowledge, that all comes from your family. Yeah, definitely. I've been thinking about this a lot because I, I was very close to my grandfather and he just passed away last month. And I had the, the honor of having him in New York City with me for the past year. And so I would see him every single week. And I don't take that lightly because I think so many queer people are not are denied intergenerational connection. And for me to have a 93-year-old grandfather who was totally rad with me, like wearing makeup and mini skirts around him and like walking around in public, like is I, I, I will cherish that for the rest of my life. And I've been thinking a lot about his impact on me and how I just make so much sense. When my friends came to his funeral, we were reading some of his favorite, he was a writer. We were reading some of his quotes from his books. We were reading some of his favorite poets. And my friends just looked at me and were like, you make so much sense. You are totally your grandfather's grandchild and you are continuing this legacy. And I just felt so happy because I'm living his wildest dreams in so many ways. When he moved to the United States in 1958, he got off a boat in New York and he literally was friends with people like Susan Sontag and Allen Ginsberg. 1961, Susan Sontag took him to his first gay wedding. And that kind of challenge of establishment politics was so passed down to me. He would read me stories when I was a child. And so my conception of the kind of Morgan Friedman God voice was his. And so I keep saying that I'm very lucky because I can't underestimate the power of having people say, not only think, but create. Like to have artists in my life, to have my grandfather when I was three or four say, I'm writing, don't disturb me. <laughs> That's such an amazing sensation to be like, wow, taking space for your creative expression is important and vital. You know, something that you wrote that really struck me was that underneath people's discomfort and hatred of gender nonconforming people, you said, is a deep, deep pain. And that strikes me as so generous, as a generous way of looking at people who've hurt you. It sounds like that was something that you learned from your grandfather. 100%. I mean, I'm sure you have these experiences as well, but when you're bullied in high school and then 10 years later, your bullies message you on Facebook and are like, oh, I was actually gay. <laughs> and then you're just like rolling your eyes and you're like, oh my God, of course. And this is the secret truth that a lot of queer people don't want to name, which is sometimes our most vicious bullies actually were, in, were, were within our own community because internalized self-hatred leads to some of the most lethal treatment of other people. And so I already learned that around sexuality and now I got a crash course around that in gender. If you were really so secure and so confident in your gender, me looking like this would just be another way to live. But it's perceived as a threat because you don't have security in your own gender. And so actually, who is the person suffering here, me or you? Because I know who I am and I have security, but a lot of this world doesn't. And so I began to realize in my own work the real transformative gesture is to say, the reason you are hurting me is because you templated this first on yourself. And especially when it comes to cis men, I think cis men are just continuing the anti-feminine violence that they've done to themselves onto me. And that my existence shows them that they didn't have to do that, that they didn't have to compromise their femininity in order to be masculine, that they could hold both. And instead of saying, teach me, they say, eliminate me. So all of that really connects and answers something that I've always wondered, which is that 
If I saw you on the street, no matter how you looked or how you felt about your own gender, etc., um, it doesn't have any impact on like me and my life. I would still go about my day and like have dinner and go to bed. And I I've always like wonder like what is the argument against letting people do what they want to do? And I guess that like really the answer is that your gender is threatening to them because of like, would we say insecurity about their own gender? Mm-hmm. 100%. Like, like, it's just, it's, it's so ridiculous to me how much energy we have to put as queer people for something that is so simple. Like, we're literally just saying, allow people to exist, period. And then people are like, no, you're indoctrinating. You're, they, they you're asking for too much. <laughs> right? They, I mean, this is some of the, one of the things I say in the book is that my gender becomes something that I'm doing and not something that I am. And that's where homophobia and transphobia live is that we're not allowed to say I am because they read it as you're making me. All of these jumps are being made, but real, the real making is heteronormativity in the gender binary, right? Is that we were assumed to be cis and straight and that every media institution, every educational institution reinforced that social assumption as as if it was a natural biological fact. And I think that is what is so painful to me about the betrayal of so many gay, lesbian, bi, cis people not supporting trans rights is that they don't understand that the same rhetorics that were deputized against them are now mapped out onto us. That how could you pretend that you care about biology whenever they used to say that gay men had a disorder because biologically we should be straight to reproduce the race? Like, how can you not see that connection? And then I think about it, oh wait, psychologically, people, when they get access to power, they don't want to divest of that. But this is the mythology of, of, of gay, gay people assimilating into straight society. The acceptance was contingent on your erasure of difference. And I don't believe that we should have to disappear ourselves in order to be approved by other people. My conception of equality and liberation is we should be able to look like and act like we are without having to accommodate to some other people's norms. And it's so telling and devastating that you saying that is deemed radical right it's absurd to me (laughs) like that shouldn't be the case right i know but i think i think like this is what the screaming queens of stonewall thought right like it's really important here in 2020 50 years after stonewall to always uplift how stonewall was a riot initiated by drag queens by visibly gender non-conforming people who were demeaned by their own community. If you read the press, if you read what people were saying at that time, they were saying these people are too loud, they're too different, they're too offensive, they need to tone it down, the only way we're gonna accept it. And it's like, here we are 50 years later having the same conversation. Like, it's so boring to me. Like, if you're gonna oppress me, at least be creative in the ways that you oppress me. That's your big ask. You talk about gender and I hear you being like asked less about like sexuality and like your own like dating life. And I just wonder like as your own conception of gender has expanded, like has that opened up and impacted who you're attracted to? I feel like for me, it's really difficult to disentangle the violence I experience from my sexuality. And I think that's, that's something I'm really trying to work on in this year in particular, is because I've been violated so much on the basis of my gender, sexuality feels dangerous. Um, I literally have had people, random strangers on the street, 
come up to me and stick their hands in my pants and say, how much? <laughs> and like that, that the, the implications of that on my body and the fear of knowing that so many trans people are murdered for being desired is just so painful because what people don't understand is that most anti-trans murders are domestic violence. They're by intimate partners, right? That this sense that the people that we love and the people that we have sex with can be the most lethal and violent to us is really hard for me to stomach. And I know that there are people who aren't going to be violent to me, but it's a fear that I have. And I feel like that fear um, is something I'm really trying to work through in my life. And it's a work in progress. Like I want to be someone that's like, I'm totally self-accepting. I'm out here like blah, 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 but I'm afraid. And, and, and I think it's important to name how we're afraid because I think so many people just say, I'm strong, I'm confident, I moved on, like, this is me. And I'm actually like, no, I'm, I'm freaking terrified because I don't trust people because I have no reason to trust people because I've been violated so many times and misrecognized so many times in my life. But I'm trying to let my guards down. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. I've never heard anyone connect that those two things before. And I think it makes perfect sense. You've written about feeling beautiful. Is feeling beautiful and feeling sexy and desired the same thing for you? So it's really great that you're asking me this question because it's something I've been thinking a lot right now because I've, I've started designing fashion design for the past three or four years. I've made three gender-neutral fashion collections and each collection I make, I have a different concept. So the first one was, what would I wear if I wasn't afraid of being bashed? The second one was, what would I wear if masculine and feminine did not colonize my imagination? The third one was, how do I break apart the distinction between what is natural and what is artificial and show that artifice is natural and that nature is artificial? And for my fourth one, I'm trying to ask, what does desirability look like for me? And that has been the hardest creative project of my life because we inherit such a reductive idea of what desire is. And I'm trying to unlearn that and say, what does desirability look like for me? Because truth be told, I feel most desirable in the kind of aesthetics that people dismiss as most ugly. So it's really, it's really hurtful. And I think a lot of gender non-conforming people have spoken about this in the past. We're complimented when we most approximate the binary. So when I'm wearing traditionally masculine clothing and I'm not wearing makeup, people are saying, wow, you're so handsome. You're so beautiful. When I shave and I'm wearing a lot of makeup and I don't show my body hair and I'm just in a dress, people will be like, wow, you're so beautiful. But when I'm out here, like I said, with my mini skirts and my hairy legs and my platform heels, people just say, I like your outfit. And it's really telling. And so I think I'm really struggling to separate my conceptions and my assertions of my beauty and my desire and a world that links beauty to binary. And that's, I think, why I started to design fashion is because I really believe that images create new possibilities. People don't know how incredibly attractive and beautiful we are. And so I want to create like cinematic, gorgeous photo shoot imagery to kind of create an archive of our beauty. What are you doing to unlearn these things about, as you said, desire? Right. I cannot underestimate the importance of relationships. I think that it's really important to uplift that very few people actually know trans people IRL. And I, 
I'm like, how is that possible in my life? But then I think about the world and I'm like, okay, if our communities and our friendships and our networks and our relationships are interclass, interrace, intergender, the way that we think, the way that we desire, the way that we read the news, all of that changes because we have real people in our lives. We can think about what is the impact of them on their life. I think for me, when I moved to New York City after I graduated from college, I knew I need to be friends with people who are tremendously different than me. And I actively sought and, and maintaining those relationships is really hard because difference is really hard. You get called out on your shit all the time. And you're like, I just want to relax. And then your friends are like, you're problematic. They're like, oh, fuck. And so <laughs> you're like, I like this TV show. And they'll be like, you only like it because you're attracted to it. And you're like, okay. But then you begin to realize on the other side, oh my God, I am such a different person than I was five years ago because of my friends. And thank God, like, thank God for all of my friends who have rescued me <laughs> and made me so much more sensitive and conscious and evolving. Let me ask one final question that I usually would hesitate to ask somebody in their 20s, but I think you've been thinking about this and I just wonder how you think about your legacy and hope it looks. Um, yeah, I think about it all the time. I went to this talk by Bell Hooks that really influenced me a few years ago. Bell Hooks has created her own institute while she's alive and she got a lot of flack because no one does that. Usually it works that someone creates an institute for you after you die and names it after you in your honor. And what she said in this interview is it's not a question of if I will be erased, it's a question of when I'll be erased. I've understood and read the legacy of people like me, and I know that my ideas will circulate detached from my body. So I'm going to do whatever I can right now to make you know my name. And <laughs> I was just blown away because I was like, that makes so much sense. Like, I know and I see it that the ideas and the aesthetics, like I have been degendering fashion since 1991. And now people are calling Harry Styles the king of like queer fashion because he wore like a dress and a photo shoot, right? And I see the ways in which my visibility creates permission for people with more power who will get capital as I get catcalled. And so I realized, okay, my ideas, my aesthetics are going to travel beyond my personhood. How do I make sure that my legacy actually says this gender nonconforming brown faggot was the one? And so that's where writing is so important to me. James Baldwin writes about how being a writer is one of the loneliest professions because your job is to reveal the hidden subconscious of a nation and no one wants to confront their subconscious. So they will persecute you while you're alive, but then when you are dead, it is the ultimate revenge because your books will be there forever. And so I strongly believe in the power of writing because when I'm gone, my books will document this bitch was right, you know? <laughs> my books will document this bitch in 2020 already said it. And there's going to be the citation and people are going to be like, oh shit. I once had a conversation with my mom where I was just feeling really defeated. I was like, you know, I, I've done things that no one really has done. I've toured over 45 countries. I'm talking about places like Kazakhstan, Uganda, all by myself, partnering with trans organizations, fundraising for local trans initiatives through being a political performance artist, right? And it's just irritating to me that mainstreaming contemporary media culture has slept on me. And my mom said to me, she said, 
who are the artists that you admire? And I spoke their names. And she said, do you think that when they were alive, people gave a shit? And I was like, absolutely not. When you read their writing, they say, no one gives a shit. But then they are remembered. And I think that moment for me was so powerful because I was like, my books and my writing and my poems will be immortal. And that is my legacy. That's my children. Wow, that is such good advice from mom. Yeah, shout out to her. Yeah, and such a nice place to leave it at. So, Olog, thank you so much. This was fantastic. Of course, thanks for having me. All right, that was Alok Vaidmanan. Their book is called Beyond the Gender Binary. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe and help us spread the word. Tweeting or posting on Facebook, things like that are really amazing ways to help our show grow. So thank you so much for that. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1, and the podcast is on Twitter at LGBTQPod if you want to tag us. LGBTQ&A is brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. Come check out our amazing work at advocate.com and glad.org. We'll see you next week.